I'm Tor Bear from Enigma. Welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to the second episode of Decentralize This, a relatively new podcast from Enigma. As I said before, I'm Tor Bear, head of growth for Enigma, and today I'm excited to follow up on our first episode with Joey Krug by bringing on another guest who's worked on a number of different problems in the decentralization space. Ryan Selkis is the founder and CEO of Masari, where they're building an open data library for crypto assets and decentralized protocols. Prior to Masari, Ryan worked at Coindesk and Digital Currency Group as an early member of both of those companies, so he's worked both on how to build and value decentralized technologies and also how to make them more accessible to large audiences, and each of those are really complicated, really challenging tasks. So we're going to talk about how his different experiences have shaped his perspective on the potential of decentralized technologies, why journalism in this space is so challenging, and who is succeeding, and how decentralized tech can be used for good, but also misused. We're also going to discuss what he believes are the largest barriers to building a decentralized future, including a lack of reliable information and transparency. And we'll also talk about how we can build a more collaborative industry and how that relates to Ryan's prolific Twitter activity where he is known for speaking his mind. I hope that after this episode you're inspired to learn a bit more, so be sure to follow the links in the episode description after you're done listening. And without any further introduction, here is Ryan Selkis. Thank you so much for joining us on this, the second episode of Decentralize This. It is so good to have you here. Great to be here, Tor. Really enjoyed the episode with Joey. Awesome. Uh, so for the people in our listening audience who aren't really familiar with you, just I try to start every episode by saying, take a few sentences. Who, who are you professionally, personally? Sure. Um, so my background was in venture capital. Uh, got into the Bitcoin industry back when crypto was called Bitcoin 2.0. Uh, so this is 2013, pre-Ethereum. I joined the founding team at Digital Currency Group as uh, someone who was supporting seed investing activity. The firm, we actually acquired a portfolio company, Coindesk, which is the largest media and events business in the space. And I led that restructuring for about 18 months from early 2016 through last year. And most recently, um, after taking a few months off, I got back into the data and information game with respect to uh, to crypto and started Masari, where we're building tools that make it easier uh, for projects um, to be transparent about the progress and um, dynamics of their tokens, and uh, makes it a little bit easier for investors and um, the general public to better understand what's going on with these emerging assets. That is really cool and similar to something that we touched on in the last episode where Joey mentioned that he thought that the fiat on-ramp, getting people to take their normal U.S. dollars or whatever currency uh, and help them get involved with digital assets, he thought that that was one of the biggest blockers to the adoption and growth of decentralized technologies. And I imagine we're going to get into that quite a bit because you're coming at this from uh, the lens of information. He's coming at it from the lens of uh, auger to some extent and prediction markets. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, I'm really interested in what Masari is doing, and we'll talk a lot about that. Uh, but first, I want to talk about why you dropped out of my alma mater, MIT Sloan, 
because when I tried to research uh, why that happened, the the only explanation that I found publicly was uh, you put on your LinkedIn because Bitcoin. And that's I, right. And I think that's a perfectly good reason. Uh, it's a little vague, and uh, you know this this podcast is more about like decentralized technology <clears throat> more generally. So maybe let's first talk about like what was it about Bitcoin specifically that compelled you to follow this trail. And then after we do that, I think we'll get into a little bit of like, how, how is it different now? How have you moved beyond Bitcoin into other elements of decentralized tech? Sure. Um, well, the, the MIT thing is pretty easy. I, I was actually in the middle of uh, I, my, my first startup didn't pan out, but we created a donor advised fund, um, which is basically like a mini foundation and tried to create a product that would allow anyone involved in a workplace giving program to create their own personal charitable savings accounts. These are tax efficient vehicles that you can manage over time. They grow kind of like a 401k. Um, there you know, was a lot of research that we did in terms of the behavioral economics of what they, this could do in macro to stimulate you know, additional charitable giving. Um, and I ran that for about 18 months, but um, long story short, it took almost two years for the IRS to get us our exempt status. And um, that's not a good time frame to work on as a tech company. So I actually wound that I deferred uh, my offer to MIT Sloan um, in the summer. This would be of 2013, right? Um, supposed to be in that uh, incoming class. And I wound the company down in October. So I had like 10 months on my hands uh, where I didn't, it was not really enough time to get another full-time job. Um, I was burnt out from the, the whole startup thing, but at the same time, I just made this small investment in Bitcoin that had just gone up six, seven times in the matter of about eight weeks, first eight weeks that I was in the, the industry. Um, so I did what any rational unemployed person would do and, and made a, a buy, sell, hold, uh, decision over a long weekend where I fell down the proverbial rabbit hole. And, you know, eight months later, when it was time to you know go to school again, I'd already decided that I was going to uh, not do that because I knew I'd, I'd hate myself and kick myself if Bitcoin and, 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 you know, what is now crypto took off. And I had spent two years um, at, uh, at MIT. As the silver lining there is uh, a, a friend of mine that I had gotten to know over the summer prior to when I would have started uh, as this guy, Dan Elitzer, uh, who is now one of the partners over at IDEO and their new fund. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, they're an investor in Masari. We've had a, a good relationship basically from, from day one, um, hit it off. And he's actually the one that introduced me to Meltem uh, Demirers, who uh, was the first person that we recruited at uh, at Digital Currency Group to add up community developments, um, you know, general BD, and 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 was kind of the the third uh, you know kind of founding team uh, member that was front office facing at, at Digital Currency Group, at least at the at the holding company level. So I feel like I've I've earned some honorary stripes, but I was able to put MIT on my resume for the $3,500 deposit that I never got back instead of the $150,000 or whatever it would have been in hindsight. Um, We're rounding and, there. And, and didn't, 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 didn't lose too much. So, um, but, but uh, other than, other than the two year party and I'm sure many other, you know, great connections. I, I personally got a lot out of that experience, and I'm and I'm sure that Meltem and Dan, who both went through the program, uh, have their own stories from the experience. My favorite part of the experience was mostly just getting to cut class and hang out in the MIT Media Lab all day, where the magic happens. So, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. 
that that was my ROI, uh, and of course, it, it led to what I'm doing now. So uh, we we have that shared background, but of course, I think you earlier than I did uh, even realized some of the potential of these technologies. So you're following the trail of of Bitcoin at the time because you'd had a, a personal investment in it. You'd fallen down the rabbit hole of the technology. So when did you first start realizing uh, that? Bitcoin was not sort of the same thing as these other decentralized technologies. Was it for you, like a lot of people I've spoken with, was it more like you you understood the value of Bitcoin first and then you came to realize the value of blockchain and other decentralized tech? Or did it sort of happen all at once? What did that moment look like for you? I came at this asset first versus tech first. And I actually heard about Bitcoin way back in 2011 um, cause I had a colossally bad trade, uh, where I went long us gold short, the U S treasuries. This is around like the debt sequester. If you remember that, uh, oh, yes. debacle in 2011, when, when the U S debt was downgraded. And, uh, I just kind of saw that as the inevitable demise of the dollar. And at 25, it seemed like a good idea and, and then realized it's not exactly how the world works. Um, the much better bet in hindsight would have been buying Bitcoin, but at that point you would have had to go to a cafe and hand someone cash in return for a USB stick. Um, and I'm not an engineer, so I didn't really grok that that was something that made a whole lot of sense. Um, so I didn't do it. And then, uh, but I kind of loosely kept tabs on it for the next couple of years. And, um, and you know, when Fred Wilson invested in Coinbase, when the Winklevoss twins uh, announced their ETF plans, and when, um, most importantly, when they shut down Silk Road, that was kind of a big thing for me because I started to look more closely at it and, and realize that this is, potentially uh, an unseizable asset, this, you know, quote unquote, Swiss bank account in your pocket, which scratches a lot of the itches for, for gold bugs. But at the same time, because it was public, you, you did have some transparency. So that the truly bad actors, you know, the terrorists, the, the kitty pornographers, et cetera, that everybody was worried about, you know, they'd get caught uh, through, you know, traditional forensics. Um, so it's kind of the best of both worlds, uh, as, as far as I was concerned, the, the network itself was not censorable, but you could still catch people at the edges. Um, that was, uh, I think pretty powerful. Uh, and, and obviously since then, there's been a, a, a number of developments that, that could enhance privacy, enhance anonymity. Um, maybe we could talk about those a little bit later, but, um, but I still think the general trend holds that, uh, this is uh, a, a tech that's here to stay because of what you can do with scarce value transfer for the first time in history. Yeah, so we'll definitely be able to talk about things like privacy. Obviously, that's something that I'm primarily concerned with, uh, mostly due to my day job, but uh, just also on a personal level. But I want to talk about a, a tweet, I think a relevant tweet that you made. You're a prolific tweeter. We'll talk about that too. Uh, so it's really hard to, do, for, to for, choose for, just for, one. For better, for better and for worse. Oh, we're going to ask you about both of both oh, for better okay. and for worse. Don't worry. You know uh, but, I like the tweets far away. Exactly. Well, I'm just going to I have a small selection. And, and this one I thought was interesting because you, you mentioned uh, – this is an excerpt from one tweet. I can't believe I can excerpt a tweet, but I did. Uh, crypto decentralization like uh, with a slash in the middle. So crypto slash decentralization as a force for good is not a foregone conclusion. And I feel like the audience for that tweet is mostly people who are already advocates of decentralized technology or advocates for Bitcoin. And I don't think a mainstream audience uh, necessarily understands how decentralization even can be a force for good. So I, I want to talk about both sides of that tweet. How do you see that decentralized technologies you know, beyond Bitcoin even are, can primarily be a force for good? What does this future 
look like? And then the other side of that, now that we've talked about how they can be used properly, how can these be misused either purposefully or just carelessly? But I want to start with the positive and then maybe move towards the dark side of these technologies. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's pretty straightforward, right? I, you know, on, on the one hand, you have this uh, dystopian uh, 1984 type of, of future with an authoritarian state and or, or, you know, the kind of the Terminator franchise and Skynet, um, this overarching, you know, global governments that uh, that enforces you know certain behaviors and 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 significantly restricts people's freedoms um and i think you know when when you think about technology you know uh, I, f- I forget someone a heck of a lot more creative and smarter than me maybe it was like peter Thiel even said you know quips uh, about ai being uh, great for authoritarian uh, regimes and and blockchain and, and cryptography being great for more libertarian leaning um, and I feel like that could be, you know, that cryptography versus AI um, split could be, you know, one of the one of the closest things to keep an eye on in the in the decades. That's so interesting, come. given so how many people are like saying that they're building uh, something that's like AI for blockchain or blockchain for AI. People have tried to bridge them, but you're saying maybe they're two sides of uh, this very dystopian coin. Uh, well, I would I, I would say cryptography versus cryptocurrency. Yeah, I think I mean, that's that, very fair. I think that's yeah. very fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cri- cri- crypto- uh, cryptography being, you know, the tool for uh the the unwashed masses to to fight against the authoritarian, you know, dictatorship. Um I uh, I you know, I tend to lean more libertarian, so, you know, my general thinking um and maybe this is, you know, especially in the US growing you know, growing up as a, a product of 9-11 and just seeing, you know, how big the government has gotten and how dysfunctional our government has gotten. Um, I think uh, having some tools in the arsenal that you can actually uh, use and, and and build on top of that circumvents um, the government is a good thing because you can, you know, clearly see examples every day of, of overreach, not just, you know, I, I, not in the U.S. even, but but certainly abroad. Um, and I think just in general. Um, so it's a so it's a tool I, for I, freedom. That's that's how you see it. Yeah, but I think people abuse that in the industry, right? Uh, to to the point where it becomes just complete bullshit. Um, because the same people that are harping on decentralization, you know, are doing so uh, in the you know 2017 ICO bull run where most people are just lying in their pockets um, with ICO proceeds and they're not securities and they're, you know, they're, they're this, that, and the other thing, but, but really what they're doing is they're enriching the creators, um, in many cases. And, um, in the most charitable case, they're helping people make a very healthy salary while they build out these decentralized protocols. So I think, um, you know, that maybe the marketing of that has been a little bit over the edge, but I still believe in the underlying, um, ethos, uh, of, of the industry and, and why it's important. So you're getting to how maybe some of the messaging has been misused, that because people feel a little disenfranchised today, either by government or just from like the fact that this AI revolution is coming, it threatens our jobs, it threatens our livelihoods, you know, people took advantage of some of the messaging around decentralization uh, over the past, maybe let's say year or two. And, uh, it, it remains to be seen, right, how all these technologies are going to play out in the long term. But the one thing that we can say is that some promises have been made that won't be kept. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think I think the the promises that were made that won't be kept with re, with respect to like the philosophical, right? The the very uh, aspirational claims that were made, um, those weren't really founders or technologists lying to other people, right? The 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 maybe some of the misleading, um, you know, uh, worst excesses of of the 2017 bull run were were you know just appealing to people's greed and and get rich quickism. I think more of the aspirational um fluff was uh was more these teams and developers lying to themselves <laughs> just to just to, just to feel better about you know how, how th- certain things will be structured um now again you know you and i are, are in this the thick of this full time um and you know we we know that most of the people uh, that are are really heads down building these applications and 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 these tech stacks, you know, they're in it for the right reasons. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, uh, that 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 the two aren't going to be conflated um, pretty regularly by you know outside third parties, whether it's regulators or just uh, skeptical investors that got burned in the ninety percent downdraft so far this year. So let's play let's play a game for a second. Let's put ourselves in the position of somebody who hasn't been following the decentralization movement very closely since its inception. Somebody who has a day job, who is not always, you know, an early adopter of technologies, but is curious maybe how some of this stuff is going, that is very much affected by some of these global trends, uh, you know, around AI, around government control, around data privacy. Let's say you just woke up today. And you hadn't followed the bull run, you hadn't followed all these promises, but you're looking now, this episode is being recorded in October 2018, and you're looking around this space trying to get involved for the first time. Do you think that those people are going to care about the promises that were made and not kept? Like, do do you think that we're going to be feeling the repercussions of, you know, the boom and bust cycle of the last 12 months for a while? Or do you think that we have an opportunity now to start laying the groundwork uh, for a future that where we're not going to be, you know, building on the empty promises? We're building on something more substantial. Do you think? Do you think we haven't salted the earth so nothing can grow, so to speak? It's an interesting question. I think um, if if the applications that have been built, the, the utility, quote unquote, utility token applications that have been built, if they actually deliver some value for their use case, people aren't going to care about the price. Um, they're going to they're going to use the protocol and the, the speculators will make their money or lose their money. Um, but but that doesn't really change the utility of of the underlying uh, protocol. Bitcoin was very, very different. Right. They're 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 one and the same. Right. This was explicitly a currency that was designed for payment, store of value, you know, whatever your um, whichever religious tribe you're in in the cryptocurrency space, um, you know, something related to payments and money. Um, but, you know, what what you guys have done, right, what what, you know, anyone that's working on a, a decentralized file storage application or a prediction market or a decentralized exchange protocol, you know, they're. The, the the tokens um, are really only designed for actual users and, and power users at that. Um, and you know whether they want to have governance in the system, whether they want to participate economically and and you know making a prediction market or serving as an oracle or providing file storage. I think 
at some point in the not too distant future, if, if these applications work, um, the dollar value of these assets isn't necessarily going to matter in terms of how it ebbs and flows because people are going to get paid for um, in in you know some type of stable currency, or they're just going to get in and out of the um, out of the proprietary asset that's being discussed. So, for instance, if you're going to you know mine Filecoin when it comes out. You don't really care about Filecoin. You care about what the dollar value of Filecoin is for the for the storage that you're committing to the network. Um, most people, most users, and I think anyone associated with the Filecoin project would agree with that. Um, so whether that gets paid back out or, or stabilized through something like uh, a, a stablecoin like Dai, or whether you're just uh, selling it basically as soon as you earn it, I, I don't really see for the successful applications anybody out of the user base really caring about this downdraft. Speculators made money, speculators got burned. Does the tech fucking work? Right. I think that's going to be the conversation next year in 2020 and, and in the years to come. Yeah. And you're making a really interesting point, which is that there's all these different incentives in the space. And part of what we're trying to explore in this podcast is bring people onto the show who have all these different perspectives. We're bringing people on who have run nodes for decentralized projects. We're bringing people on who uh, are you know artists who are responsible for the storytelling of the space, and those two people are probably not going to talk on a regular basis. They're probably not going to care about what the other person cares about, but they are two people in the same ecosystem who need to make things work, and things need to make sense for node runners. They're not going to run nodes if they're not going to make ROI, but there needs to be a vision for the technology or you're not going to get mass adoption. So you know, we'll, we'll dig up a bit how, how all these people fit together, but I'll, I want to pivot back as promised to you personally and your history, because as you said in the intro, you, you yourself have filled a lot of these different roles within the space, right? You started with mm -hmm. digital currency group, mm -hmm. moving to Coindesk and then moving to Masari. I would say I, I, I started as a, a free agent gunslinger with the blog, but yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't mean to uh, take that well, piece no, of history I, away from you. No, I, I, I bucket that into a very unique. Um, you know, I wasn't getting paid, but I was. I was certainly active. I'd say. Um, but go on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for um, sure. To yeah. to be sure. And and I know that you had a perspective uh, even coming into that. But I think each of these roles that you've held must have shaped your perspective in some new way. So I, want, I wanted to walk through each and think about like the before and after. So, so starting with Digital Currency Group, where you were, I think, working a lot on seed investment activity and some other aspects of the business, you mm -hmm. must have had some kind of investment thesis coming in. You must have had some kind of vision for the space. So from the time you started there to the time that maybe you moved to focus more on Coindesk, how did that evolve? Like, how is your vision for the space changing over that time frame? Um, you know, I think from 2013 to 2016, it was all about Bitcoin and infrastructure around Bitcoin. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, unless you, I don't know how many people participated in the Ethereum ICO, like 3000, do you remember the exact number or something like that? Right. I do not. I will um, look it up. All right. Let's, let's call it 3000 people participated. All I know is within the last year, there's at least 15,000 people that have claimed that they've invested in the Ethereum ICO. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just isn't true. Most people were very gung-ho Bitcoin maximalists. Um, and that was basically the only game in town 
and 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 either Bitcoin or a fork of Bitcoin was the only game in town. So all of the infrastructure that was being built, all of the picks and shovels were how do you buy, how do you sell, how do you spend, how do you store Bitcoin um, for that first go around. So basically the entirety of my time pre-Coindesk was um, how do we actually build the infrastructure around this digital currency, this asset to make it safer to use um, and, and more approachable for people from retail to more sophisticated institutional investors. Um, so very, very different. I mean, just in the, you know, I, I put that all in its own like epic, right? Um, whereas 2016 and beyond was Ethereum and dApps um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, new protocols that were being developed as, as new platforms uh, to either complement or in some cases replace Bitcoin because of its perceived weaknesses. Um, so most of my time on the investing side um, was uh, a lot different than I think what uh, what we've seen emerge in, in more recent. Right. The the time years. frame the time frame that you're describing uh, as going through this transition is is I believe while you were at CoinDesk. So I want to I want to hear from you. What was your vision? You know, while you were at CoinDesk, what did you see as CoinDesk's? role and mission during that time in the space when the space was shifting to being more than just Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, we, we wanted to try to stay as heads down and chronicle the movement of this new financial system. And, and, you know, I didn't play a role at all in editorial, um, for someone that likes to write as much as I do. Um, I think I wrote one or two posts in 18 months. So I, you know, I didn't want to jeopardize the independent editorial brand that CoinDesk had. So, you know, my, my focus was very, just very much behind the scenes wearing a business hat and, and, and trying to do whatever we could to, to make that business sustainable. Um, but I'd say, you know, generally speaking, it's, it wasn't, it still isn't clear, uh, quite frankly, if any of these enterprise blockchains, these, uh, these blockchains without Bitcoin, um, are interesting at all. And I'm not, I'm not sure one way or the other, the, the, the most interesting meme of 2018, actually, I find to be an inversion of the blockchain, not Bitcoin meme, which is this security token movement. It's essentially the same thing, but now because 2017 was such a monster year for the digital assets themselves, people, instead of saying, Hey, let's settle securities using blockchain. Now it's let's create digitized securities that are tradable as crypto assets, right? And so it's 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 essentially people just following the news cycle and, and following the money. Um, but you know, from CoinDesk perspective, it was never about you know what what's the vision that we had as as a, a, a company as a brand. It's just let's objectively cover how this industry is evolving in real time. Do you guys feel like you did a good job of that? I think Pierre has done a phenomenal job. Yeah, I'll 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 go to war for that guy. He 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 and Stan Higgins basically rebuilt the entire editorial team in the depths of uh 2016 when CoinDesk was down to just the two of them and almost no freelancers because the company had been running out of money. Um and they stuck around, they hacked it together and and now I think the editorial team's around 25. You know, it's it's not a perfect product, but they they have done a phenomenal job coming out of the depths and, and building 
I think almost without question, the best objective source of, of information for the industry. Um, again, they're, they're not going to cover everything. They're not going to, you know, not everything that they're right is going to be a hit. Um, when it comes to in-depth, longer form research and, and, and more nuanced coverage, I think there's plenty of opportunities for other services to, uh, to arise. And, you know, by the way, including some of the things that we're building in Masari at the research level, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm really proud of what we were able to accomplish and what those guys have continued to do even since I left. So if you go on Twitter, and again, I don't recommend to any of our listeners that you do, but if you go on Twitter <laughs> and you follow conversations there, you'll see oftentimes that there is a very contentious relationship. As you said, it's not just tribal between projects. You know, there's a lot of distrust of the media overall, the fake news movement, whatever. That's not crypto specific. Uh, but there is still animosity, I find, uh, between the people who are trying really hard to accurately cover this space where there's so much noise, so much inaccuracy, that's not always aided by the projects themselves, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. So the journalists are coming into conflict with the projects who feel like their technology, their vision is not being adequately uh, written about, spoken about. And then you have the journalists complaining that the projects themselves haven't been forthcoming with information. Uh, we're going to talk about Masari in a second, but I but I want to ask you, you know, do you see that changing at all, or, or is this just the way it's going to be? Because I, I feel like these are gonna people are gonna to have to learn how to work together, and I agree with you that CoinDesk does an admirable job of trying to stay an objective source of truth in what's happening, but they get their fair share of criticism from you know Vitalik himself all the way down to like you know the the smaller projects. Uh, what what could they be doing differently or what should projects be thinking differently about how, how do we rebuild like a healthy relationship between crypto journalists and the developers in the space? Sure. Um, part of the problem with coverage in this industry is that projects change, right? Uh, you know, a, a journalist that has a hundred other topics to cover on a weekly basis, monthly basis that has, limited resources, deadlines, um, and by the way, is getting paid a fraction of what an engineer would. Um, they're not going to be able to know everything that's going on in real time inside a founding developer's head. And if you look at how many iterations on product, on tech, on business models um, happen on a weekly basis in the industry, it's impossible to get all the details right. You know, uh, just something as simple as brands, right? I mean, you know, uh, the, the the number of brand name changes that happen on a week to week basis, it's um, it's it, it's impossible to keep up with. Um, so I think you know, are are you going to get things right in real time? Not necessarily, um, but uh, or, or or you know, will pieces get quickly outdated? Of course. Um, but I think outright malicious, you know, hit pieces and, and, you know, clickbait driven pieces, I generally think are the exception and, and not the norm in crypto media. Um, now they're, you know, uh, again, the, there, there are some that just make their bones, uh, off of, of slinging mud against anybody. Um, I actually think that the, the, the mainstream media coverage is, is demonstrably worse and you would actually expect it. Uh, I don't know. May, maybe that's to be expected, but I think um, I think the crypto rags do a much, much, much better job of covering the day to day fairly and, and as objectively as possible than you get from Bloomberg, from The Wall Street Journal, from 
you know, really any of these. Things. Um, and that's not to denigrate the, the the other journalists from those publications that are covering this. It's just to say there is, I think, value um, just as there is the joining a, a fully baked engineering team that's working towards a common goal uh, versus being a, a lone wolf. I think there's value at the editorial and research level to joining a, a larger team that's just focused on this 24 seven. I think that that's a totally fair assessment. And I know that there's difficulties with getting the mainstream media to cover the decentralization space fairly. Um, and sometimes they don't do themselves any favors because the New York times runs headlines like everybody is getting hilariously rich and you're not. And they could have chosen well, a million true, different headlines. Right? <laughs> yeah, it well, was true. It, it, uh, you know, people people don't like the title, but it was perfect. <laughs> I would I would I wish I had written that title, and it was spot on for January of this year. It was spot fucking on. So yes, there there are some misleading uh, headlines. There are there are certainly some problems with coverage, but uh, I I think that um, I think the worst habit in the industry uh, that that people have with respect to understanding you know media and third party analysts is just assuming that they're going to get everything right. If you want them to get it right, then pay them, right? Um, you know, it, it's it's next to impossible for people to actually make a living as independent objective analysts. Um, and so, you know, people bitch about it all the time, but, it, you know, if, if, if you want to fix it, then you got to actually support it economically. Otherwise, you know, folks are, are just going to be completely overmatched that you want covering the ecosystem. Um, the issue is, do you pay them directly? Well, if you pay them directly, then maybe that becomes PR. So it loses the independence. People yes. want independent, fair, objective media and research, but they don't like to not get an A plus on their paper uh, from that same independent, objective media. Uh, and in which case, you will never actually get independent, objective, critical media. <laughs> so it's this double-edged sword of like, fuck you, you don't know what I'm what you're talking about, and you know. Some in some cases that that could be a a, a teachable point um, for entrepreneurs in the industry. You know, salvation lies within. Yes, <laughs> I, I understand. So I, I guess what what I take objection to maybe uh, is just the idea that all the mainstream media coverage that I experienced for for those months was focused on the idea that the technology was not separable from the price. And we've just spoken for some time now about how the technology is separable from the price, or, or at least should be. And a lot of these mainstream headlines were very much focused on on the value as, as placed by secondary markets on the technology, and maybe not so much about the potential of the technology itself. And I'm sure we could talk at length about that, but I want to give you the opportunity to talk about how you think tools like Masari, which are focused around things like transparency, uh, first of all, I see that being a huge help for journalists who want to know that they're at least covering the basics of a project accurately. Uh, but Masari doesn't just exist as a tool for journalists, right? It's supposed to be something much more than that. So I want you, in your own words, to sort of explain, of all the problems in the crypto space right now, and you've experienced, I'm sure, many of them over the last you know half decade or more, uh, why this one? Why is this the problem you're choosing to solve, and why is Masari the the tool to solve this problem last summer you know, i took a couple months off and and one of when i finally did go down the ico rabbit hole i wanted to just answer one question for myself which is is there any there there or is this all bullshit um and obviously i i do think that there are some projects that have merit that are are just extremely exciting um both 
from the tech level, but also um, with respect to the, val the potential value of, of these crypto assets. Um, they're most everything is overvalued right now, I'd, I'd say still, um, but it doesn't make it any less exciting as, as a future asset class for, for when some of these things take off. Um, but but the whole concept behind Masari was really born of the frustration that we're in a market right now that has uh, private market information asymmetries and public market liquidity. And that's what's been driving a lot of the dysfunction. So when Dan uh, Cardle and, and I, my co-founder, uh, got together last summer, you know, we were he had built a tool called on-chain FX, um, which is you know a terrific you know crypto asset ranking and 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 you know filtering site. It's a dashboard that I think a lot of power users uh, really like to use. But when we were talking about on-chain FX, um, you know, I, I said to him, look, the, the Bloomberg of this asset class is not going to be built as a, a siloed software as a service business. It's going to have to be open source, decentralized in some way, shape, or form, because Doing that is the only way you're going to move the needle and, and actually convince these projects and these these you know, technologists that are centrally managing and, and kind of creating these tokens to give you any information as if they feel that everybody else is doing the same and, and everyone's on the same playing field on an opt-in basis, not on a top-down basis. Masari, you know, we said we want to build an authoritative data source uh, for the industry. Part of that is going to be proprietary. Part of that is going to be open source. Right. So which pieces need to be proprietary, which pieces need to be open source. Um, and there's really three components. Um, there is curation of news analysis and research. Right. So not trying to be the authoritative source on every interesting thought piece that comes out because that's impossible. Let's curate the best of what's really insightful, what really might move the needle and help people understand these these assets. There's the quantitative, which is that's the obvious. That's the, the kind of core that Dan had already built with on-chain effects. Um, not just what are what's going on with these assets from a, a price and volume standpoint, but um, what's going on on chain, right? Fundamentally, how are these assets you know moving and, and being used? And then the third bucket is is where the rubber really meets the road, which is this opt-in disclosures library that we've built um, that uh, you can kind of think about like a, an Edgar repository if you're using the, the public securities analog. Um, and this is the base layer where all projects report using the same common data structures and the same um, you know, spirit of transparency, if not kind of letter of the law to actually populate entries and, and, and material disclosures about how they are managing their projects on the path from centrally created to decentrally um, driven by you know, some community government uh, governance. Um, you put all those three things together, and, and I think you have a good dashboard that helps people understand and, and, and actually contextualizes what's going on within these micro markets um, per, per asset. Um, Tying that, you know, all together, if 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 we can build that foundation, there should be Bloomberg, Morningstar, S and P, um, you know, of course Reuters and 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 you know a whole slew of other ratings uh, solutions, you know, trading tools, other you know index index products, right? They're 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 if we get the open source component right, we can at least agree upon a common language. Then there's 50 other data services that are going to emerge, and this is going to underpin the crypto economy, just like um, the the public reporting architecture uh, underpins the securities market. Um, so without that, you know, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic on on the industry self-regulating or cleaning itself up because no one's even speaking a common language. With it, 
at least we have a lowest common denominator, and then we can start to separate, you know, the, the wheat from the chaff a bit. So, Masari solving a huge problem, from what I see, is this is this the biggest barrier to the adoption of decentralized technologies? This lack of transparency or or common data sources or common data frameworks? No. no. Uh, it's it's one of them. I mean, there there's so many issues. I think the, the biggest one is just usability, right? What what of these technologies? What of these uh, uh, products that have been issued actually works better than? a competitive alternative. A competitive uh, the centralized alternative. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or decent, yeah. I mean, uh, what, whatever, right? Uh, the, the issue is one of performance. And in my eyes, there's really only been two assets so far that have outperformed. One has been Bitcoin as a, an unseizable store of wealth. And the other has been Ethereum, not as a smart contract library or, or this uh, fuel for decentralized applications, so much as it was a reserve currency for uncensorable fundraising um and 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 i think you know a killer the use primary, case it, it was a killer use case and but the thing is now that the, you have things like the saft and you have all these funds being spun up they're making direct investments via safts or or, or directly into tokens um and ether is no longer being used really as a reserve currency that you need to hold in order to purchase and, and buy into these icos um, which, you know, I think is the primary reason it's come down. You know, people can argue that, you know, uh, all day long. But uh, but I think that's what drove it on the way up. And I think that's what's, uh, you know, led to it coming back a bit is, is the fact that it's no longer a reserve currency that you must hold for this killer application. Bitcoin still is uh, with respect to just, you know, the, the Swiss bank account uh, type of thesis. So you see Bitcoin and Ethereum as having been the two most successful so far. Maybe not even mm-hmm. at their stated missions and, and visions, but in terms of having that adoption and, and being used for something. So yeah. I, I asked Joey the same question on the first episode. I'll ask it to you. How far do you think we are from mainstream adoption of decentralized technologies? And what is the first decentralized application that you think is going to have millions of users and you don't have to name a particular application or a particular cryptocurrency just like give give me a sense of in your mind what it might look like yeah i I talk a lot about gray markets and um and building ethical but technically illegal applications right so so what's pushing the envelope that doesn't fit into a neat box that should be developed um but that is encumbered legally uh, for some reason at, at, at um, a societal level, right? So a good example is prediction markets. Um, you know, you might call it gambling, uh, unregistered gambling. Well, some of these prediction markets could be really, really valuable um, if if they were set up in a decentralized manner because you could, you know, you could price insurance products, you could get, you know, much more accurate, um, uh, you know, probabilistic estimates of, of certain real world events. And, 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 is there a gambling element to that? Well, you could, if, if there is, and that's true, there, then you could also say there's a gambling element to the stock market, right? Um, I, so think I think many people pretty, have made that claim. Yeah. So, so I think, uh, yeah, and, and much, maybe even more credibly, right? Because at least you can prove that, uh, well, well we, we won't go down that, that rabbit hole, that tangent. But um, no, I, I do think prediction markets are really interesting. Will Augur work? Will Gnosis work? Will, you know, which ones will, will actually um, pan out? 
remains to be seen. Um, but that's definitely one. Um, the other thing that, you know, uh, the other major area that, that I'm really excited about um, is decentralized exchange. But I don't necessarily know that any of the decentralized exchange protocols have tokens which are valuable or, or have some type of fundamental uh, underpinning to their, their current values. So, yeah, you know, I always try to think of what's the, um, how can you think about this in, in, as a, a real world alternative? Um, something like prediction markets or, or right to earn tokens, work tokens, it, you can price them almost a little bit like a, uh, an income producing asset. Something like uh, Filecoin or Gollum, if they work, um, you can look at the replacement cost for centralized storage or centralized compute. So these certain digital assets you can you can actually back into real actual value. The other uh, the other you know governance tokens, um, I could make a case that you can value those as well um, because we know from public equities we know in, in general that there is a premium uh, that companies will have for you know uh, uh, control rights. Um, so you can actually quantify that. I'd argue maybe it's even a little bit greater in in crypto because these are um, you know, decentralized assets where it's that much more important since you don't necessarily have the rule of law on your side to be able to uh, feel confident that you have a critical stake in, in you know, one of these protocols so that it can't be corrupted by, you know, one or several of your competitors. Um, but it's things like that where it's just new mental exercises um, that, uh, that, that I just don't think, you know, we're, we're, we're at the Inning one, if you're going to use that example of, of how to even think through these assets, the non-currency assets, at least. But I do believe that they're going to proliferate. I would agree with you. I think that we're a couple of enabling technologies away from seeing the true potential of decentralized applications. And a, lot of, a lot of people are, are working hard to try to prove that out, myself included. Mm -hmm. But we know that it's early stages. Uh, I want to close by bringing things back more personal again. Uh, so I promised that we'd talk more about Twitter. Um, so I, I, I just want to acknowledge because we're going to bring on some other polarizing people as well. And I think it's fair to describe you as polarizing because I've seen you be very effusive in your praise on Twitter uh, of people that you really respect, including your own team that you've built now at Masari, which I mm -hmm. think is very commendable. You should, you should always fall in love with the team that you've built. Uh, and then I've also seen you pick a few fights. Uh, and I, I think that following somebody's activity with that, like the people that they that they praise, the people that they will will pick a fight with, says something about that person's you know principles and values in the space. Mm -hmm. So, what are your principles and values, and why do you think that you know some of the people who have given you crap on Twitter, what, what do you think they're missing about you? Like, what what are they not getting about your principles and values that make them think that you're some awful human? Um, I mean, I don't try to change their mind, one way or the other, <laughs> right? Like people make their own judgment calls and, you know, people, um, Twitter's no different than real life, right? Um, yeah, there's, uh, plenty of people don't like me in real life. I'm sure I, I certainly hope there's a bunch that do. Um, so, uh, I, you know, Twitter is, it's just a, a, a microcosm of the real world. And, um, I've gotten to the point where, I I try not to uh, unintentionally ruffle feathers or, or or you know just stir shit up for the sake of stirring shit up, um, and I've tried to get a little smarter about you know 
battles that I've picked. Um, I don't think I've picked too many bad ones, to be honest with you. So there's, like I said, at the, at the onset, I, I don't very frequently delete tweets. When I do, I'll actually call out that I deleted a tweet because I backpedaled on something or I'll apologize. So uh, I'm pretty quick to course correct. Um, and, you know, but there's some people that I just, I don't have, uh, I just don't have any patience or, or tolerance for, for, for their, <laughs> for their shenanigans on Twitter. So I think one of the biggest adjustments I've made this year is just liberally blocking people, um, that, that are just, you know, on the attack mode. Um, I try to be a little bit more thoughtful about my, uh, attacks in that I try to ask more questions than just outright attacks. Um, but I'm not afraid to mix it up, uh, particularly if someone, evades my questions and then calls me a liar and then refuses to to, to back down from that. So uh, I, I won't name names, but I think uh, people listening probably know who I'm referring to. Well, if they're following you on Twitter, <laughs> I'm sure they can figure it out. Uh, no, but it's important to me, right? Like this is, it's important to me. And again, as I mentioned earlier, the point of this podcast is how, how do we get people in this space who have vastly different incentives, vastly different perspectives on the technology on the value of the technology, on the timeline of the future of this technology, they all have to work together somehow. You know, we're all we're all playing in the same pool here, and we're all in this together in terms of trying to build solutions that are different than the centralized institutions that we have, be it corporations or governments, uh, the, the things that have sort of hardened into stone that shouldn't that shouldn't have hardened, right? Like we're trying to soften things up a little bit. So, is there anything? that we can close uh, with you saying that you think will uh, serve as a call to action for people to collaborate with you and with Masari and maybe even with me going forward. Like what, what is a principle that you think can bind all of us together uh, as we're doing this? What could we possibly all have in common? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the first half of, of, of your comment, I was going to say with, with friends like ours, who needs enemies? Um, <laughs> but in terms of what could it, I, I think that, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk our own book here a little bit, but we, um, we think a lot about just abiding by the spirit of common sense, existing law or ethics um, is should be the, the guiding principle for most of these projects. Um, and everybody's going to have their own interpretation of that. So what, what we've at least tried to do is think about, okay, what's the, what's the lowest common denominator that we can agree on, right? Should people understand when new supply hits the market from a foundation's balance sheet, right? Or, or should they just be allowed to tell their venture capital investors, hey, by the way, we're going to dump 50% of our supply tomorrow. You might want to get out ahead of that. Um, I think most people of reasonable principles would agree that that's not a, a good way to operate. Right. So that's one example. Should we um, be able to very cleanly identify who is affiliated with a project and who's authorized to speak on behalf of a project if they are already a public figure, right? And, and legally has have the authority to speak on behalf of a token creator. I think most people would agree that you want to know who the founders are and you want to know who the actual advisors are, not just the ones that are listed in a pitch deck. Um, I think people want to know that they're, you know, donating or, 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 you know, paying into the correct wallet addresses um, and going to the right websites and not getting, spammed or, or, or fished or 
defrauded in, in some way, shape or form. Right. That's where the industry is right now. So so let's forget the whole this is a security. It's not a security and, and kind of taxonomy battles. Let's forget the whole uh, smart contract wars. Your technology is shit. No, yours is we can scale faster. No, we can. Let, let, let's kind of drop all that. Um, and because this is an asset first ind industry, we're not talking about blockchain, not Bitcoin. We're talking about actual crypto assets now. Let's at least think about the people that are on the other side of those trades um, and and try to come up with some, you know, 1.0, not even, right? Like a, a 0 0.1 um, for, for, for how we're going to try to build this out ethically. And then all of the other good aspirational stuff, the great world changing tech, like that'll all follow. Um, that's, you know, I mean, that is kind of at the at the root of why we started uh, uh, Masari. So it's obviously something we've we've got quite a bit of skin in the game on. I think that this is a good place to wrap up because I, I would summarize everything you just said uh, around this principle of transparency. And I think that you yourself try to be a transparent person. I know you don't pull punches. I know you don't delete tweets. And if you do, you say so. <laughs> uh, and I think that people do create projects and companies that sort of reflect their own principles and values. And if transparency is one of yours, then I, I think that Masari is definitely a reflection of that value. And I wish you all the best of luck in building it out. I think it's necessary for the space. As you said, it's not the only problem facing the space, but maybe it is the critical blocker, at least in the next few months, to bringing some sort of legitimacy, self-regulation. It'll be interesting to see uh, how projects adopt it. And it'll be interesting to see what we're able to build as a result. Uh, Ryan, I want to thank you. We've had a great time talking here. I hope it was in, as entertaining for you as it was for me. And it was also very instructive for me. Uh, so thank you for taking all the time to appear. Uh, we'll add links below this video when we upload it to YouTube so people can learn more about Masari and about you and maybe even follow you on Twitter if they dare. Um, but again, Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I know all of our listeners do. Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you want to learn more about Enigma, you can visit us at www.enigma.co. Uh, you can go to our blog at blog.enigma.co. You can join our Telegram group at t.me slash Enigma Project. Uh, if you're curious about anything we talked about in the podcast today, make sure you follow the links below in the episode description. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Medium so you don't miss our next awesome episode and interview. Otherwise, thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on Decentralize This. I'm Tor Bear. Have a great day.